Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Musician Rhiannon Giddens is on a quest, and the facts of her own life are a compelling metaphor for the path she's forging. Born in 1977 to a black mother and a white father, Giddens' childhood in Greensboro, North Carolina, was one where the messiness of American history showed in how racial confines were both rigid and permeable. She tells a story about how her black grandfather and white grandmother both worked at a Greensboro tobacco factory. And once, when her white granny as Giddens calls her, needed assistance with her taxes, she went to Giddens' black grandfather for help. It's the South, isn't it? Giddens told the New Yorker magazine. The point is that they are different, but the same. It's that duality that Giddens is exploring in the history of American music. She's already well-known in Roots music as a former member of the Carolina Chocolate Drops. But more recently, she's been digging deeper into ideas about the rigidity and permeability of the cultural confines we place around music. Say the word bagpipes, and it conjures up the image of a kilted Highlander, she recently said. But it should also bring to mind an old man in Sicily or a soldier in Iraq. Music has been in constant movement and constant change since the time of the ancient world. No culture gets to put the lockdown on anything. Giddens' restless musical exploration has won her a MacArthur Genius Award, and this year she was given the Pulitzer Prize in Music for Omar, her opera about enslaved people brought to America from Muslim countries. I had the chance to speak with Rhiannon Giddens just a few weeks before she won the Pulitzer. We sat down together before a live audience at WBUR's performance venue, City Space. And right off the bat, I asked Rhiannon Giddens to play us a song, and she kindly obliged. Thank you. 
Ladies, everybody. She did that as a favor to me. I was like, we need to just hear the music right from the start. So thank you so much, so much. Tell us a little bit about what you just played. Um, There's a tune called Black Annie that uh, I learned from Joe Thompson, who was a big figure in my life. Um, He was an 86-year-old African-American fiddler that I met when I was in my uh, 20s. And that's the beginning of the chocolate drops. Um, myself and Dom Flemons and Justin Robinson um, apprenticed with him. I always say it was my second training. Um, he was the last of a long line of black fiddlers um, that reaches all the way back to the time of slavery, black string band being a huge, unrecognized and almost forgotten tradition that is actually forms a lot of the underpinning of, of a lot of American music. And so he was our living elder connection to that. We were incredibly lucky because he was the last person really to be playing that kind of music that um, we know of in the South. So Can I ask you, and you met him, you said, in your 20s, yeah. right? Um, but And that was the first time that you also realized that he was living close by to where you were. I mean, I'd never even heard of him. I mean, he was, he was from Mebbin, which is like I went to for my family reunion every year when I was a kid. I had never, didn't know he was there. Well, I mean, I wasn't into, I wasn't playing fiddle and banjo music when I was a kid. I didn't start any of that till I was in my 20s. But like on the heels of finding out that the banjo was a black instrument that was created by people from the Af- African diaspora and the Caribbean, there's that. And then right, right on the heels of that was the, the uh, you know, discovery of Joe Thompson, who lived practically in my backyard, you know, and like knew my family's people and... Yeah, it was kind of like lucky that we had him for the time he died when he was 93. We were so blessed to have him. And he was, I think he was also felt blessed to have us, you know, people from his community who were interested in this music. But I'm like, dang, you know, you, you kind of go, gosh, if it had been like 10 years before that, where would we be? You know, but it's just like we're we're so we're so blessed to have the time we had with him, you know. Well, so I want to just put a mental pin in that moment. Mm-hmm. Uh because you had just said you hadn't been playing fiddle really before that. So let's go kind of back to the beginning, because I love the story of you know, your early years and your musical journey. Where, where were the biggest musical influences coming from to you when you were a little kid? I mean, I would have heard, I, I spent my early years with my grandparents, my sister and my grandparents, and um, I mean, lived out there. I mean, I mean, I saw my mom all the time, but like I was kind of based out there in the country. and. And uh, they had jazz and blues records, and then they listened to Hee Haw every Saturday night. <laughs> Roy Clark was my grandma's, like, dude. Like, and this is my black side, right? <laughs> Which should have told you, I mean, like, I was like, I literally embody the story that I tell, because it's the black side that watched Hee Haw every Saturday night. You know what I mean? So it's like, clearly this was coming out of you know, a shared history, but like, we don't talk, we didn't talk about it. So anyway, um, so I grew up and then, you know, I was living with my mom and, and singing with my sister and my dad, you know, my dad was a voice major, but they were all, they were hippies and, you know, so it was a lot of folk revival music. It wasn't a lot of classical or, or, you know, there's some pop music, you know, just a bunch of this and that. I became obsessed with They Might Be Giants and Tom Lehrer, (laughs) as you do. Um, 
started my weird affinity for like really clever lyrics. Um, and you know, that, that was the natural progression from they might be giants to Tom Lear was then of course to Stephen Sondheim. So <laughs> I was, you know, there was no way I was getting out of that one, but I, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't listen to like roots music. Yeah. You know, but I heard bluegrass. My uncle was a bluegrass musician, you know, um, but I didn't hear any of the stuff that I do until I was, you know, I, I went, came back from college and went back to North Carolina. So I approached all of this as an adult, mm. but the, the, the groundwork was laid in a weird way, like with the way that I was raised. It's, it's, a, it's interesting to think about. And you sang in a choir when you were... I sang in a choir when I was young, the Greensboro yeah. Youth Course. Um, which taught me how to sit up straight and, you know, breathe from my belly and not from my shoulders and how to be in a group, you know, how to mm -hmm. sing. I've been singing with my family. Like I sang harmony with my sister. We sing together all the time. We still sing together. Like watch, like claw, almost crawling inside somebody's mouth to like sing the perfect accompaniment to them. And I love doing that, but it started with singing with my sister, you know. But yeah, I, 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 I didn't... I didn't have a lot of formal education in music. You know, I didn't know how to read music. I could pretend <laughs> in, in Greensboro Youth Course um, and, until I went to college. And that's when the full indoctrination into Western art music began. <laughs> well, I think in a sense, it sounds like the fact that you weren't thrust into the spotlight um, at a young age and had your voice being a, a source of sort of fame from a young age allowed you to develop a sense of mental and emotional and spiritual maturity about all that music is and, and means. Yeah. I mean, I feel like literally the doing the chocolate drops, I was five years older than the other guys, you know, so I had already, I had been working a day job since I got out of school. I mean, I was working, I worked a day job for five years when I graduated, you know, cause like an opera degree and 250 gets you a <laughs> cup of coffee, right? So <laughs> Um, I, I didn't know what to do. And so I was like working, I was working, I had 401k. I was like doing like marketing and, you know, doing that stuff and wanting to be a musician, a full-time musician. So when it hit and we got to do it, I knew what I was walking away from, yeah. you know, and I knew what it was like. And then I had my, I had got pregnant, had kids on the road, took them with me, you know, like my, their dad came along and like, it was really hard, but in 200 something days a year with papoose, you know, on the back and like, you know, trying to do this thing, talking about Joe Thompson's music and the black string band and the banjo being a black instrument and this mission. So my first solo record wasn't until I was 37. Mm. 37. Mm. You know, I did this mission bass. I was in, sitting in the middle, you know, playing banjo. I got to sing like two songs a set or something like that in the Chocolate Drops. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I was service oriented. Uh -huh. And before that, I played contra dances. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I, was a do I was a caller. Yeah. You know? Service. That's like that stuff that serves. And I, I feel so lucky that that's my, that those experiences were my, that what, that's what I started with. I didn't, you know, like, uh, it's, I'm, I just feel lucky. Because I, I feel for people who are 18 and have a, a, a hit, yeah. you know, that takes them around the world. What do you have to say when you're 18? I mean, you have a lot to say, but you know what I mean? It's like... <laughs> Well, it, it's like you're just starting, like, and then you're going to be on record saying X, Y, Z, that you're going to look back in 10 years and go, man. Yeah. <laughs> I, or even look back in like 10 minutes and go, Right. Man. 
<laughs> you know, with the social media. So anyway, I just I do feel I, I feel like everything's happened the way it needs to. More of our conversation with Rhiannon Giddens in a moment. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash on point. That's Indeed.com slash on point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Now more from my recent conversation with Pulitzer Prize-winning musician Rhiannon Giddens. I spoke with her recently at WBUR's performance venue, City Space. I've mentioned Giddens' deep study of the diverse connective tissue that forms American roots music. She's described that as her mission. So I asked her to define more precisely what that mission means. I mean, in short, it's really to find the stories of America that exemplify the best of what we are. They're so often covered up. The stuff that we learn in school, I kind of feel like is some of the worst of what we are. (laughs) You know what I mean? And we have to learn that too, but like, we don't learn the good stuff that goes along with it, I don't think, And, and not in the right way. And you find these stories of people you know, not just African-Americans, like so many different groups here in America that like, you know, make it through the most horrific circumstances, the toughest lives, and they make these things of staggering beauty, or they communicate with each other, or they collaborate, and they make this art form or whatever. These stories of people who just have have done these incredible things against all odds. And I'm like, that's what I want to talk about. That's what I want to hear about. And And so I feel like if the impetus wasn't this kind of truth, I don't think I would still be making, like doing this. I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. So again, I'm grateful to have that. So give that truth that you're talking about more shape. Like, what do you mean about this kind of truth? Well, like these stories, like for example, the, when I started to learn about the banjo, that's what started everything. Yeah. Right, so I was I grew up like everybody else. Like the banjo was invented by white mountaineers in Appalachia. I mean, that's just what we're told, right. you know, or with, that's what we assume. That's like the the whole idea. And then to find out that it was created in the 1600s by black people in the Caribbean, I was like, what? That's about as far away from mountaineers in Appalachia as you can get. You know what I mean? So to find that out, but then within that, to find out when you erase that history, you also erase all the cross cultural collaboration. Mm-hmm that is also in that history because that's what it is. You know, eventually everybody's playing the banjo. 
And that's the beauty of it, you know? So that kind of started me off because like once I found that out, I was like, oh, what else don't I know? <laughs> right? And so that's kind of driven me. But then as I've been going, the other question has started to come into focus, which is in whose best interest is it that I don't know this history? Uh-huh. And I don't think you can ask one without the other. Yeah. So it's just like the language is so important and the idea of there's always an action that's happening. Right. People just didn't forget about the banjo in the black community. You know, there were specific things that were done, happened, erased, whatever, you know, um, not allowed, all of these things, along with just sort of normal progressions of time and, and movement of bodies and, and traditions change. But then along with that, there was this, you know, there's this concerted effort of erasure and, you know, uh, uh, false narratives and all of that stuff with sir, which again goes back to in whose best interest, mm -hmm. you know? And so what I find is that all of these things are to keep us separated. Right. Right. All of this, all of the stuff that, that I feel like I've been digging up, not alone. I, I depend on the work of so many researchers and people who are doing this work, you know, primary sources. I just go, thank you very much. I'll make a song about this and on we go, you know? And so starting to do that with like slave narratives, like you know, narratives by enslaved people feeling moved to do something with all the emotion that goes along with reading a book like The Slave's War and creating a song from that, which is where Julie comes from, which is where at the purchaser's option, and also focusing on women's stories because so often, you know, the, yeah. it's the women's stories that get left out. And so it's kind of like, and the black woman is like at the crossroads of, <laughs> you know, race and gender. So it's just, I'm like, well, that's my job. Yeah. So I'm going to do my job. Okay. So you mentioned uh, the purchaser's option. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could play it for us? If you want, yeah. <laughs> Let's we'll see what's in there, I don't know. I've sung this song a lot. Um, I'm grateful to have it, that it came to me. So I'll do it in that spirit. Young, but not for long. 
can take my body, you can take my bones, you can take my blood, but not my soul. You can take my body, you can take my bones, take my blood, but not my She tells a story, doesn't she? How do you feel? How does your body feel when you're playing this music, playing that song in particular? Because there's so much power within you that comes out through your voice, through the, through the music. I mean, it's just mesmerizing just to watch you. I'm wondering what it's like from your experience. Um, it's like a divided experience. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's the best I can describe it. It's like there's the me that's kind of going, you know, all the technical stuff, like <laughs> play the right notes, um, uh, whatever, like pluck it, this, do that, stand here, um, open your eyes enough to see if you're still on the mic, you know. All of that stuff's kind of happening over here. And then there's the rest of it, which is just like, I just can just, I guess I'll, I could just describe it as conduit, you know? Mm. It's just not, it, it's just not, I'm just there to ferry. Yeah. You know? And so it always feels weird to have applause. You know? I don't do those songs for applause. Right. But for those songs, those are my sacred songs. Yeah. And I do them because I'm supposed to do them, because they were given to me to do. So even if I don't want to sing the song, which I didn't, 
I don't want to sing that song. Right. But I'm like, it's not, that's not up to me. Mm-hmm. I've been called to sing this song in this particular time, so I'm going to sing the song. And that's when I just let it completely take over, yeah. you know? Um, and it's an honor for that. Because I'm like, I didn't live through that. Right. It's literally the least I can do to sing about it, you know? That's the bridge, one of the bridges that, you're, that you're, your mission is yeah. building. When I write a song like that, what I'm doing is I'm creating an emotional shortcut mm-hmm. from the story on the page or the story 250 years ago or 400 or whatever to right now, you know? And that's my job. Like, I, I kind of call myself the performing arts wing of, <laughs> of like, you know, the, the academics. Because I read the books, yeah. you know, all the work that they do. They're digging in the stacks and, like, reading these crumbling, you know, parchments and, and making these incredibly well-researched books. And then I, I, something inspires me, and then I write a song about it. Mm-hmm. And I talk about the book, you know, The Slaves Were by Andrew Ward. That's where I got, you know, that my first one is, or whatever, wherever I get it from. And uh, people may or may not go read that book, but they have a piece of it yeah. through the song. Yeah. I almost feel like it accomplishes two things at once, which almost, almost might seem to be in opposition, mm. right? Because it's like this beautiful exhibit of music being this uniquely human endeavor, mm. right? That travels and flows and evolves and mixes. But at the same time, you're also drawing on distinct traditions and distinct cultures, which brings up the question, and and you've thought really deeply about this, of like, should we consider certain traditions of music as having ownership by certain groups, you know, or is that even the right way of thinking about it? I mean, I think it always goes back to in whose best interest do we tell these narratives? And so much behind really nationalistic ways of looking at folk art is the intent to divide and the intent to control. Because the one thing that is constant about tradition is that it changes. <laughs> it is constantly changing. Now, there's a big difference between tradition naturally changing because people move. People have been migrating for millennia. That's what we do. We move from one place to another. And when we get there, we are changed by the place that we have gotten to. And we, in turn, change the place that we are in, right? So there's this constant push-me-pull-you flux of how traditions change. But then I think there's also a way of looking at it where you can respect what that means and not just pick and choose and like, here, I I like that. I'm just going to take it and, and put it on like a coat and then take it off when I feel like it. I think those are two very different things. They get conflated. People go, oh, there is no such thing as cultural appropriation. Uh, Because when we're talking about a power differential, yes, there is. But when you're talking about cultural appreciation, which is just people rubbing up against each other and going, ooh, I like that. Musicians, artists, everybody does it. That's all American music is constant, you know, but also along with that story is the constant who was profiting from it. Right. You know what I mean? I, I, I do feel that, you know, but I don't think anybody should feel like they own anything. Like we don't, like we shouldn't own any instruments, like because instruments travel, they change, people do different things with them. It could be one person that went from one village in Italy to somewhere and then all of a sudden everybody's playing that one accordion style. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or it could be an amalgam of all the different people who came over and it changes into something else. Like all of those stories are true at the same time. 
you know? So I, I think that whenever somebody starts to become a gatekeeper, mm. I am like, watch out. And it's like, in whose best interest is it that there are rules, right? Because if there are rules, then you need people to enforce those rules. Right. And then that means somebody's getting paid, mm. you know? So it's just, and I don't know if, I don't think everybody's always malicious like that, but it, it, the system itself is not a healthy one, I don't think. And, and we, we would need to be up here for like five more hours to really get into <laughs> it. Cause it's, it's, it's delicate. I mean, as someone who has been a guest in other people's traditions, I did a lot of work in the Scots Gaelic tradition. My children speak Irish, Gaelic, you know, they live, we live in Ireland, but I've done a lot of research in the Scots Gaelic tradition. And to me, the language spoke to me. It was really beautiful. And the story, and then I learned that black people spoke Gaelic in North Carolina. And then I got real interested. <laughs> and it's that thing about the knowledge of the history can open up all these vistas. So, you know, I went to Scotland, I studied with native speakers of Gaelic, I've listened to loads, I know what I'm singing when I sing in Gaelic. That's respect. Yeah. And then when I do my mouth music, I put some scat in there. I do some, you know, I do what I do to it. I'm not trying to sound like, you know, somebody from Sky. You know, I sound like myself. That's why I tell people when they're like, can I sing a spiritual? I'm like, yes. <laughs> Should you sing a spiritual like you a 78-year-old black woman from Alabama? No. <laughs> Don't do that. Sing a spiritual like you are. Because, like, what are spirituals anyway? They're amalgamation of African and European musical elements that are, were put together by people who were undergoing a really, really hard thing. So it's like, why does anybody own that? Nobody owns that. Have respect. Yeah. Know what you're doing. Take time. Take time. Talk to people who are in that tradition. Find your own personal connection to it so that you can approach it like a respectful guest. Mm -hmm. You know, And know your own tradition better. If you know your own tradition and where your own history is, then you can bring something to the conversation instead of going, I have a hole inside. Please give me what you have to fill my hole. You know? And that we are not encouraged. There is no blackness, like the idea of the blackness as a fake construct, right? Which it is. There's no fake blackness without an equally fake whiteness. It's all made up. And the target's always moving. So it's like the more that we each know about our own family history, where we come from, where we are based in, what is our family culture, the more that we can then actually have a respectful communication and handshake with a culture that we admire that we would love to incorporate into what we do. After the break, more from Rhiannon Giddens, including a performance of one of her latest songs. You won't want to miss it. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair, 
Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And now the final part of my recent conversation with Rhiannon Giddens, recorded before a live audience at WBUR's performance venue, City Space. We circled back around to Giddens' own origins. I was particularly eager to know how young she was when she realized that she possesses a uniquely powerful and beautiful singing voice. It's a question I've asked her in another interview a few years ago. Now, as she did then, she answered with humility. You know, like my sister and I were always singing around the house. And one of the things I'm most grateful to my parents for, like I couldn't begin voice lessons until I was 16. Because my dad was like, your voice is still, you know, still developing and you shouldn't, you know, just sing. Just sing in a choir. That's what you need to do, sing in a choir. So they put me in a choir. And me and my sister were like, we want to go to do Star Search and we want to <laughs> sing the greatest love of all and like be famous, you know. And like, it was just little tiny impulses. We weren't really obsessed with that, but like, you know, the audition comes, you'd like stand in line at the mall, you know? <laughs> and my mom was like, that's nice. If you want to do that, you can do your kata. So we were in karate. So kata are the pre, like the movements, there's a series of movements that, that help you learn. And when you're a beginner, they're not very interesting. We're not talking like crouching tiger, hidden dragon, like spinning kicks and stuff. We're <laughs> yeah. talking like... Thank you very much. Somehow we didn't get picked. <laughs> and so we would wait in line and we would do our kata and then we would go home. <laughs> and so we never like had these moments of, hey, we're young people, like we got applause for doing this thing. You know what I mean? Okay. For being cute or whatever. And so I'm really grateful that I, I held that in with Greensboro Youth Chorus was my, my real first performing experience with a group of kids singing music together. I could sing, but there was nothing like anointed about my life as a singer. So I, I wanted to work for Disney. I didn't think about being a professional singer. I just loved to sing, right. you know? You are so talented, and you're, you've spoken a lot about collaboration. Mm -hmm. It's a really, it's a central part of how you approach your mission. Yes. So can we talk for just a minute or two about some of your collaborations mm -hmm. with the work that you do with your partner, Francisco Turisi? Mm-hmm. You've called him and you doppelgangers. <laughs> you know, it was one of those, like, how did we meet each other? Like, how did that even happen? You know, he's from Torino. He's from the Piedmont of Italy, and I'm from the Piedmont of North Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> and other than that, like, none of our music overlaps. Everything that we do is absolutely complementary. I went to school for Italian opera. He went to school for American jazz. But then we're both very, very interested in the folk traditions of our very, of our people. And he was interested, you know, I've been obviously championing the, the true story of where African-Americans fit in the creation of the American musical identity. And he has been talking about how much influence the people who came from the Middle East and North Africa and the Mediterranean up into Europe, yeah. the bringing instruments and, you know, uh, numbers and <laughs> all sorts of things and how that's been suppressed, you know, in European history, it, this kind of information. And then what does that mean culturally and all of this kind of stuff? Like, you know, the couscous festival is on Sicily. 
right? There's a couscous festival in Sicily. Like his aunt used to make couscous. Like this idea of what is cultural collaboration, what is, you know, cultural suppression, what is all of these things. And so we have this kind of parallel tracks that we've been sort of trying to, um, trying to do ourselves. And so when we met, it was like kismet. Well, we actually have a really good question uh, about that from the audience. Someone wants to know that your music and art seems to be a bridge to bring people together in a divided country. Is that a pressure you feel? It's like, it's an inside out pressure. It's like, I get tired and burnt out sometimes, but I can't not do it. You know what I mean? It's like, we're all unique and none of us are. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, we're all put here with a certain set of skills. Would I love to play Dot in, in Sunday in the Park with George? Yes. Are there other people who can do that? Yes. Right? And there's other people who could do my work too, but I'd say there's, there's less. Mm -hmm. So it's a combination of what is it that I love to do and what is it that makes me sing figuratively, um, but also what am I supposed to do? Yeah. Where, where have I been led? You know, there's this idea of what is our responsibility as human beings to the community that we should be serving. And what we've lost is that connection. Mm-hmm. And you find these stories of people, you know, not just African-Americans, like so many different groups here in America that like, you know, make it through the most horrific circumstances, the toughest lives, and they make these things of staggering beauty, or they communicate with each other, or they collaborate, and they make this art form or whatever. That's what I want to talk about. That's what I want to hear about. And, and so I feel like I've been brought to the place where I'm, I'm given the opportunity to lift some of these voice, you know, yeah. some of these stories. And so I just feel like I wouldn't be in the music industry if I didn't have it mm -hmm. because I am so anti so much of what the, the industry stands for, not music. It's the industry, you know, the focus on money, the focus on all these things are very antithetical to me. And they are very against making art in my, you know, for me, like I have to make art for reasons of, what we're talking about. Yeah. And then I have to make a living <laughs> within that. So I'm a, I'm a reluctant capitalist, you know, I, you know, you do what you have to do, but like if the impetus wasn't this kind of truth, mm. I don't think I would still be making like doing this. I wouldn't be sitting here yeah. talking to you. So again, I'm grateful to have that. And so we have this audience question of how do you relate to or hold or let go of trauma through your art? Mm. That's a, that's a very good question. Uh, I don't always. I have to figure out ways to do things in my life where I can do a slow release if I need to, mm -hmm. you know, because I, I can't always walk away. Sometimes I can, it's, it's here, it's through, I'm good. Sometimes it's not, you know? Uh, and, and thinking about these things, I think, is really part of what we do, what we should do as creators. Uh-huh. So like when we create these pieces, you know, we're seeing more and more pieces being commissioned on very culturally relevant and heavy and connected pieces or, or hist parts of history in, in America. And we have to ask ourselves as creators, as commissioners, and as, you know, edifices that are, that are helping to put these things on. And as audience members, what, are our, what is our responsibility to the psychic energy that we are conjuring mm. with these pieces? Mm -hmm. You know, th this is not the Barber of Seville, right? That meant something to people who lived in Italy, <laughs> you know, hundreds of years ago. We're creating pieces that now mean something to us in a different way 
than, you know, what we've been doing. So it's just that is tied to that question because it is something that we have to, I think we should think about. Art is not just art. Right. You know, it is always connected to something that is the reason why we love it. So art is, I think, really powerful. And, and one of the ways, the ways that we commodify it in this country takes away a lot of its power. Because when you're doing art for money, like solely for money or to be famous or whatever, what does that mean about the, the what, it, what is it then? You know, I, I just think that art has such power mm. when we use it in the way that I think that we developed it as human beings, which is helping all of us process yeah. these things that happen to us in the course of our lives. Yeah. Anyway, I'm, I'm a talker. She's like, please stop so that I can. No, <laughs> I am not like, uh-uh-uh. Uh, uh. No, 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 no. Uh-uh-uh. No. What I really, the look you're seeing on my face was, I wish that we had a bullhorn and could just <laughs> transmit like everything that you said to the entire world, actually. Um, because you are calling for something. Um, you're really calling for something that I think we all, all being everybody, needs to apply not just to how we approach music, but life. I mean, you're calling for respect, humility, appreciation, slowing down, knowledge, research, um, depth, uh, being, being open, open-hearted, open-minded, uh, but the respect and humility part, I think, are really, really key here. So I think what we should do is, because uh, I know folks want to have, uh, th no, no, this, I'm just being like actually trying to figure out a way to get her to play another song. Because uh, <laughs> I'm also running out of time here. You got books that you need to sign. Um, can you do one more song for us? Can you do Build a House? Um, is it time for that already? Okay. Yeah. Uh, I wrote this in uh, 2020. We all know what happened in 2020. Um, it was in the summer of 2020 um, during the social unrest that followed um, what was happening with the murder of George Floyd and the awareness of, gee whiz, things still suck for a lot of people. Um, and trying to think about what all of that meant of being stuck in Ireland, locked down, trying to explain things to my children, trying to just, you know, think about all of these things and then like seeing what people were saying about the protests and just getting really mad. I just got really mad. I got salty, which I don't usually get salty. I, I usually kind of keep a, keep a positive vibe, but I was just so angry. I was like, what do you want? You brought us over here to X, Y, Z, and that's kind of where it started. You brought me here to build your house. And it's like... So it's basically 400 years in a four-minute song. Um, I wrote it, performed, you know, did it with Yo-Yo, kind of distanced. Um, somebody in the comments said this should be a children's book. And here we are today. Starts with um, a creation of a tune that I made around the snatches of tunes from the Hans Sloan document from the late 1600s was one of the earliest transcriptions of music made by people of the African diaspora in the New World that we have in existence. 
tune called Coromanti that I took a piece of and built a tune around, and that's what begins this song. Oh 
Rhiannon Giddens, performing her song, Build a House, live at WBUR's performance venue, City Space. She's got a children's book, also titled Build a House, and is the recent recipient of the Pulitzer Prize in Music for her opera, Omar, which tells the story of enslaved people brought to the Americas from Muslim countries. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. 